wonder what's the thing in your life that shakens your faith, that uh, sort of brings you to your knees and causes you to wonder what the outcome's going to be. How many sleepless nights have you had because of whatever the enemy has brought into your life, whether it be a trial, a trouble, a tribulation, a testing, some sort of difficulty, maybe some bad news, maybe a relationship issue, maybe that one thing, that one something that maybe exists even right now that sort of rattles your cage and causes you to sort of take a look at at what you're facing and wonder, where are you, God, and how is this going to work out? If you have never been there before, you are to be congratulated. Anybody never been there before? Anybody? I don't see a single hand up. Uh, how many of you are there right now? Anybody want to admit that right now? How many of you have just come out of something like that? How many of you are on your way to something like that? Every hand should be up, all right? You either have been through or going through or you are about to go through something in which I believe the enemy wants to rattle your cage. And as we take a look at Acts chapter 4, we come across this incredible text where we see that the people of God are in the will of God doing that which God had called them to do. And for no fault of their own, they find themselves in a position and in a place of facing tremendous odds. And the enemy has bombarded them time and time again with threats and with trials and trouble is about to come that is intended by the enemy to cause them to stray from their faith, their trust, and their mission that they have received from Jesus himself. I mean, if you can imagine, here we have two guys, they're on their way to church on a Sunday morning, so to speak, and as they go through the gate that enters into the place of worship, they see this lame guy who there who looks at them and asks for alms, and he says, silver and gold have I none, and in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And uh, you would think that would be an incredible time. On your way to church, you have an opportunity to share Jesus with someone. They trust in Jesus, and they are miraculously, supernaturally transformed. You bring them to church, and as you bring them into the church house, people are not that excited about what's happened to them. Well, not everybody. There are a few who are not happy about it. There are some who are curious about it. And as a result of that curiosity, God uses Simon Peter to preach this incredible message. And while he is preaching the gospel message of Jesus Christ to those who have gathered or been gathered because of this incredible miracle, they are arrested, they are thrown into prison, and the next day they find themselves in front of a kangaroo court before the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin who are there, 71 accusers demanding answers, demanding that they stop proclaiming Jesus, demanding that they stop preaching Christ and the gospel message of Jesus and filled with the Holy Spirit, Simon Peter stands to their charge and says, no, we must, we are compelled to proclaim Christ. And they threaten them even more. I don't know what those threats were, but I guarantee you those 71 threatened them with their lives. And when they left that kangaroo court, they understood and they realized and they knew that if they continued to preach Jesus, they were going to lose their lives. That's the kind of intimidation. That's the kind of threat that it was. If you continue to follow Christ, you will lose your life. And what did they do when they left? We're going to look at that text 
this morning together in Acts chapter 4, beginning with verse 23. And I want us to understand that as we do, it is here that we learn how to trust an unfailing God in very difficult and troubled times. For there are times when troubles will come, tribulations will come, testings will come, difficulty will come. And it's in those moments and at those moments when we are tempted not to trust in God, to turn to him. And when we do, we'll find exactly what we need in our moment of need. There are really four things that I want us to look at. Number one, if we're going to put our trust in God, we need to count or connect with a faith family. We need to connect with a faith family. It's important to do that, and we'll take a look at the text. So notice verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priest and the elders had said to them. Notice as soon as they were released, where did they go? They went to their friends. I hope you have friends. But these were not just friends. They were people who had placed their faith and trust in Christ. They were people that also, like them, had put their confidence in the Lord Jesus Christ. It was none other than the fellowship. We're not sure if they were just outside of the gate in which they were released. We're not sure if they were up in the room. We really don't know where they are. But we know that as they are soon released, where do they go? They sought out their brothers and sisters in Christ who share the confidence they have in the Lord. They sought people of faith. It's important when you go through troubled, trying, difficult times to surround yourself with people of faith. Now, not everybody who is of the faith, I would consider to be people of faith. You know what I'm saying? Because not everybody who follows Christ has the same optimism or has the same conviction or has the same belief in God as you do. And so it's important that we seek out those who have faith in God. And our faith family, our spiritual family, are the people they sought out early on. As soon as they were released, they sought out to be with other people who believe like them, who possess the same convictions they had, because it was in that that they were going to receive comfort, support, and strength, because there's always empathy among those who are Christ's followers. They sought out other brothers and sisters in Christ, but notice that when they sought them out and found them and got together with them, they shared their burden. A burden is always lighter when it's shared. If you try to carry it by yourself, it's going to weigh you down. And that's why we look to and long for and associate with and connect with other people like in a small group or like in a community of faith or a Bible study. And we, we gather with other believers because the burdens that we have are meant to be shared. And I know it's dangerous sometimes to share a burden with somebody because not always does that burden stay in the small group, does it? It's hard to be vulnerable, and it's hard to be uh, someone who sort of opens up to those around you and share your innermost secrets and, and maybe your burdens and your difficulties and those kinds of things. But if you can't do it here in the family or the body of Christ, then where can we do that with security and with comfort and with, with, with the opportunity of gaining strength and unloading those things that are burdensome to us so that they will help us carry the load. That's what they did. They shared all of the threats and the intimidation. Now, you might think, well, Simon Peter and John were filled with the Holy Spirit. We saw last week while they were standing before the Sanhedrin, these 71 judges. But even filled with the Holy Spirit doesn't mean that they weren't subject to human fear as well. A little bit of nervousness, a little bit of are you sure type of things? 
Uh, I think sometimes we have a tendency to believe that being filled with the Holy Spirit means that we are not human anymore and that our humanity is somehow has been stripped from us. And I think we see in this text Simon, Peter, and John and this lame man who has now been cured feeling a little bit insecure, needing to connect with a spiritual family so that they can find the strength that they need. That's why on the, on, the, on the screen you'll see Hebrews 10, 24, 25. It says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as a habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. It's interesting here that the Apostle Paul kind of picks up on that same theme, and he said it's important for us to connect to a body of Christ. And I believe those who are disconnected from a church family, from the body of Christ, even from a small group where you can gather together on a weekly basis, those who somehow believe that they don't need anyone else in order to live the Christian life are going to be the easiest targets to defeat and the ones in which they will find their troubles are more burdensome than they need to be. It's kind of like that little boy who uh, on a day like this in children's church, uh, they brought their children into church and they were sitting somewhere, you know, in this sort of section and, and uh, this little fellow was small and he was kind of a hyper type. You know what I'm talking about, Mark? Kind of a hyper type, kind of just always moving and always talking and those kind of things. And the people around them were getting bothered and disturbed by this little guy. I mean, he was loud and he was kicking the seat. And, and people began to turn and he'd give stares at mom and dad. You've never done that, right? Like, can't you control your kid, you know, one of those stares? And then finally, dad, in complete exasperation, picks up the kid you know, just picks him up, and his face is facing this way, and his legs are dangling, and he's kicking, and he begins to proceed out. And as he's going out, every eye on the, in the congregation were pointed in that direction. I know what that's like. You've lost your, your audience. And everybody's looking. And as Dad is taking him up, the little fellow's screaming at the top of his lungs. But before they hit the door, he says, Hey, y'all, would you please pray for me now? He knew he was in trouble. You know, even a little guy like that in a critical time knows how important it is to ask the body of Christ to pray for him. Not sure it helped out much, but nevertheless, we need each other. We are better together than we are apart. And if somehow you feel isolated or you have isolated yourself from the body of Christ and from others who will love you and encourage you and carry your load and share your burden and pray for you and stand beside you in difficult times, you need to reconnect and you need to stay connected because it's important to do that, to connect to the family of faith. Number two, we need to communicate praise. It's interesting in the text you see in verse 24, and when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, and when they heard the report, what did they do? What was the immediate, instant reaction to what they heard? Praise, worship. They came together, that idea of unity. They became one voice standing together with these three men who had just been threatened with their lives and, and have been sought to intimidate them and to destroy their faith. And they came together and they lifted their voices together to God. And they said, I'm not sure they had any instrumentation back then. They didn't have any of those, what was that again? That shaker and that 
other instrument or any horns. I'm not sure the other church had, had, had all of that. You know, they didn't have what we have today. So they just simply sang. They used their voices and they cried out to God. They came together and they lifted their voices to God in praise. Whenever you face a trial, a trouble, tribulation, difficulty, hardship, whenever your faith is being threatened by the enemy and you find your back up against the wall, our first reaction after finding other believers should be one of praise. There's something about praise that releases the spirit and revives the heart as we come to the presence of God. And when that happens, our burden seems to shift from ourselves to God. Notice, they lifted their voices to whom? To God. They lifted their voices to God. Notice what they sang or they said. Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. Praise always recalls the power of God. Praise always looks to God as the sovereign, as the Lord, as the omnipotent one. That word omnipotent is a big word, children. It just simply means that God is all-powerful. Praise looks to God, and as praise lifts its voice and its eyes to God and sees God on the throne, praise then sees God reigning and ruling on his throne. He's not abdicated his throne. He is the creator and the sustainer of all creation, and as the creator and the sustainer of life, I have nothing to worry about. Because I know he is on his throne. He created this world. He created me. He knows my circumstance and my situation. And there is nothing greater, mightier, nothing that can overcome him as the creator, as the sovereign Lord of lords and King of kings. And I know that I can trust him because whatever he allows or whatever he does in this circumstance is okay by me. Because I know that he, as God, has allowed it or permitted it to happen. And so we see that praise recalls the power of God, but praise also recognizes the pre-knowledge of God, or what many might call the omniscience of God. Notice it says in the text, Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. This, it's a beautiful passage talking about the omniscience of God in that God had, had set aside a servant named King David, had anointed him with the Holy Spirit, and upon anointing him with the Holy Spirit, gave him Psalms 2, verses 1 through 4, this beautiful passage that already talked about, prophesied, gave his omniscient information, gave, gave us insight into what would happen to Jesus. You see, God already knows and already knew what happened to Jesus. He already knew. It didn't take him by surprise. When Christ arrived and was born of a virgin and lived his, his sinless life and then began his ministry and began to receive nothing but rejection from not only his, his Messiahship, his claim to be the Messiah, but his message of salvation when, when that happened, it didn't take God by surprise. When they took Jesus and hung him on the cross, it didn't take God by surprise. He didn't go, oops, I didn't see that coming. 
God has this foreknowledge, this understanding of the past, the present, and the future all at the same time. That's a, that's a privilege we don't have. Don't you, don't you wish you had that ability to see the past, the present, and the future all at the same time? Would it make a difference in the decisions that you make and the reactions that you make? And so God already knows before it happens And he's not taken by surprise. And as we lift our voices to him and we recognize that he's the sovereign, powerful one on heaven and that nothing takes him by surprise, then I begin to look at my circumstance and my situation in a different light because I know that God has not been oopsed by this circumstance or wowed by this situation or taken by surprise at what I am facing because God already knew in advance before I got here that this was going to happen. So therefore, he must have a plan for a way out. He knows who you are. He knows what you're going through, and he knows where this path is going to take you so you can put your trust in him. And that's what praise does. It recognizes that God has a future for me, that God has has objectives for me, that God has a mission for me, and all of this is happening in order to accomplish his plan and his purpose. Let's bring us to the next one that praise also rest in God's providence because God is going to take care of me. He's a providential God. He's a God who's going to care for me. Verse 27 says, and truly in the city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That's an incredible passage. Notice verse 26. Let me read it again. Let it sink in for just a minute. And to do whatever your hand, speaking of God, and your plan had predestined to take place. God had a plan. God has a purpose that he was going to accomplish by sending his one and only son, Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believed in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God is a providential God. And God revealed and God accomplished his plan through Jesus in spite of the fact that these men thought that they were killing Jesus. I mean, as you can imagine, these guys were probably sitting down and they were plotting to kill Jesus and they were thinking to themselves, hey, if we can get this guy and arrest him, if we can put him through a mock trial, if we can find him guilty of things he didn't commit and somehow hang him on a cross, he'll die. We'll throw his body in a, in a tomb and that'll be it. That'll be it. It'll be over. Done. The end of Jesus and the end of his disciples. And that's what they did, right? They did just that. Was that the end? You see, what the, what the disciples here are doing in their praise, they are recognizing that in Jesus, in his life, his death, and his resurrection, even though man tried to supersede the providence and the plan and the person of God, they did not succeed because they didn't, in fact, while they may have killed Jesus, he rose from the dead, but they didn't stop the progress of the gospel. They didn't stop his message from going forth, and now they were the ones who were representatives of Jesus now sharing the Messiah and the message of the gospel. And in fact, all that they tried to do, in spite of their best plans and their best efforts and accomplishing what they thought would bring a silence to the gospel, in fact, actually caused the gospel to spread even more. And so as a result of that, their plan failed. 
It kind of reminds me of, you know, that old song that we used to sing when we were kids. I don't know if you remember singing it or not, and I don't know if they sing it today, Miss Vicky. He's got the whole world in his hands. Do you guys still sing that song? We're really that old school of a church. We still sing that song. Isn't it interesting how children don't argue over what song to sing and what's worship and what isn't? Yeah, I'll just let that settle for a second. Sing it with me. He's got the whole world in his... All right, turn to your neighbor and say you're not singing it loud enough. Come on. He's got the whole world in his hands. 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 He's got the itty-bitty baby in his hands. He's got the itty-bitty baby in his hands. He's got the itty-bitty baby in his hands. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got you and me, brother. In his hands, he's got you and me, sister. In his hands, he's got you and me, brother, sister. In his hands, he's got the whole world in his hands. You know, and we, we usually hold our hands out, right, don't we? And talk about God having everything in his hand, in his control. When praise suffers troubled, trying, turbulent times, when you suffer those things and you praise him, you are reminded that God has everything in his hand. And that because he does, everything is going to turn out fine. It's going to be in accordance to his plan. It's going to fulfill his purpose. And it's going to be according to his promise. And I didn't say, I didn't say it's going to turn out just like you want it to turn out. Make a note of that. I didn't say it's going to turn out like you wanted it to turn out. Because a lot of times what we want isn't what God wants. But it will always turn out the way that God wants. It will always fulfill his purpose. And sometimes, even through suffering, as we find out through the life of Jesus, there is an ultimate plan and ultimate purpose that God is seeking to do in the life of those whom he chooses. Number three, we need to count on prayer. We need to connect with a faith family, communicate praise, and commit to prayer. You know, when you face a trial, a tribulation, trouble, difficulty, hardship, we should not to commit to a faith family and look for others around us so we can share the burden and we can kind of gain strength from them. We should not only communicate praise because praise somehow lifts our spirit and gets our eyes off of our problem and onto the Lord, but prayer is is the opportunity that we have and the responsibility we have to join God and being a part of the solution. You want to do something? The best something to do is to join God in prayer. Prayer is that one thing that we could do, that we should do. It's really something we must do in difficult times. Notice verse 29. And now, that's a transition here. They have been praising, they have been worshiping, they have singing, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand and heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus in this prayer there are two recognitions right off the bat in the first three words and now Lord they recognize something when they pray that word now they recognize that time is critical this is a critical moment. 
They're being pressed, they're being squeezed, they're being threatened, they're being intimidated. This is a, a now moment. And if there ever was a time to pray, this was it. Because time is of the essence. The gospel must go forth. Lives are at stake. And they know that this is not a moment to, to delay. This is not a moment, Baptist, to send it to committee, to study and to think about. It's a time for action. And so they recognize and realize the critical moment is now. But notice the word Lord indicates that they, in their prayer, acknowledge that he is Lord. And it's important that when we pray, that we must pray as and, and with this recognition that he is the Lord, not only of our circumstance, but our life, but also the Lord of our prayers. He is Lord. But notice what they pray for. Look upon their threats. One of the things I see with that word look, that means that they are asking God to look. Now, is God not looking? Is God not aware? No, but they're drawing God's attention to this particular problem, to this need, to this specific prayer request. They're asking God as they concentrate their prayer on this particular thing. Sure, there were other things that were important in their prayer life at this time. There were other things that were going on in their individual lives and the corporate life of the church. But they were asking specifically from God at this moment to look upon this particular, this special need. And I think there are times when we pray that one need should surface to the top and be above all other concerns. As we bring those concerns to God, as we concentrate our prayers on those specifics at the expense of the others. Notice not only the concentration, but notice the continued service. Look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Did you notice that? Don't, don't overlook that. What did they pray for? They didn't pray, Lord, release me. Lord, relieve me from this burden. Lord, kill my enemies. Lord, stop this persecution. Lord, take away this trouble. Release me from this trial. Please do whatever you need to do so that I don't feel the pressure of the burden. No, what they prayed for is, Lord, as we are being squeezed by this intimidation, by this evil enemy that's seeking to do harm to us, if we continue to do that, we are praying not to be released, but we are praying that we continue in spite of the oppression to continue on in living the life that you've called us to live, to do the thing that, very thing that you've called us to do, and that is to proclaim the gospel. We are your servants, and we are not praying to be released, but we are praying to continue continue give us the strength to continue in the service that you called us to do that's an incredible prayer really isn't it because the reality is most of our prayers are what lord get me out lord take my enemy away lord remove the trial and the trouble and the tribulation lord i don't want to deal with this they didn't pray all that they said lord in spite of this we are asking that you help us continue we know we're going against the grain. We know we're swimming against the tide. We know there's going to be pressure. We know that we're, we're going against the authorities. And as we go, Lord, give us what we need to continue in that. Notice then the courage. They pray for boldness. They pray for boldness, for courage. Courage in the heat and in the moment of, of being oppressed, 
of trial, of trouble, of difficulty being pressed upon them, they are asking God to give them courage. And that really is what the enemy intended to do and he sought to intimidate them to be silent and never preach the gospel again. Don't tell anybody about Jesus ever again. And they intimidated them, the Bible says. Why do they do that? To bring fear into their lives. Fear is an ugly thing because it robs us of our trust and our faith and our obedience in the Lord. You think about the many times that you're, and there, I'm not, it, you know, we should be afraid of some things. I should be afraid of jumping off here. Of course, not as afraid as if I were jumping 50 feet off the air. There should be some concern. I'm not saying you shouldn't have any concerns. But we shouldn't let our fears dictate and determine our obedience to the Lord in outcomes that are imaginable even if they are brought by intimidation and uncertainty about how the enemy is going to react and put our trust in God for the outcome. But notice also they're praying for changed lives. They're praying for changed lives. Notice it says, who were stretched out. And he said, while you stretch out your hand, stretch out your hand to do what? To heal. Signs of wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They're praying for transformed lives. Sure, I think if you take a look at this and during the week and you, you see what some scholars say about this text, they are looking for some sort of confirmation that their testimony as they are proclaiming Jesus has an impact on those they are preaching because that will testify to those critics, those who are intimidating them, see this is real, this is authentic, this is of God. But I think really also what they're praying for is they're praying for transformed lives. They're wanting the hand of God to change hearts, to change lives. That the gospel will go forth with power, supernatural power. Because unless that gospel goes forth with supernatural power, it cannot simply change lives just by us speaking. It has to be something that the Spirit takes, the Spirit uses, in order to transform the lives that hear and repent and receive Christ. I wonder how much of our praying is praying about transformed lives. I wonder how much of our praying is praying about God bring about a renewal, a revival, or maybe life to an individual. Interesting that I think we take a look at this. This prayer is not a silent prayer. It's a very loud prayer it's a prayer that the whole church rallies around they're all praying the same things and asking God for the same things it's not like that father and son who were uh, having a father and son day it was almost the end of the summer and dad hadn't spent a whole, a whole lot of time with his son and so he decided to take him to work that morning and all morning, he'd put him in a, in a corner, you know, at a table, and the sun had been pretty busy, and it had been a good morning, and so it came time for lunch, and Dad decided, okay, I'm going to take my son to lunch, and so he did, and, and he went to his favorite diner, and they sat at the diner, and they ordered the food, and before the food came, the father looked at the son, and, you know, he wasn't one to really be very vocal, verbal or loud about his faith, and he said, son, the restaurant's crowded, so why don't we just, when the food comes, just each of us say a silent prayer, Okay. So they said, sure, well, we can do that. And so the waitress brought the food, and as the food was put in front of them, they each bowed their head and prayed. And, and, uh, and so the father, you know, he was a little bit quicker, and so he got through with his silent prayer. He looked up, and his son was still praying. And 
He didn't want to eat while his son was still praying, so he waited and 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 he waited. And finally, after a long pause, the son finally lifted his head and picked up his fork and began to take a bite. The father began to bite, but curiosity got the best of him. He said, well, son, he said, that sure was a long prayer. He said, yes, sir, it was. He said, well, what did you pray about? He looked at his dad and he said, I don't know, dad. It was silent prayer. Think about that. It was a silent prayer. This was not a silent prayer. It was voiced. It was loud. It was intentional. It was directed at God the Father who reigns on the throne, asking God to intervene supernaturally into their circumstance and grant his favor upon the work that he had assigned them to do. And lastly, we see a continuation of the Spirit. It's important that we understand that once we commit to prayer and God answers prayer, that we not take the steering wheel and grab the bull by the horns and dictate and determine the outcome, but we continue in the Spirit, the same Spirit that Jesus promised in Acts 1, the same Spirit that they received in Acts 2, the same Spirit that filled them in Acts 2. And the same spirit that filled Simon Peter as he spoke before the Sanhedrin is now the same spirit that must operate in and through them to accomplish and to fulfill what God has called them to do. He didn't leave us to do what he has called us to do or to engage the enemy or to face our challengers or to face our troubles on our own. He equipped us with this beautiful person called the Holy Spirit and he is omnipresent with us through his spirit who engages in us and through us as we charge the enemy, so to speak, and we face the battle. Notice verse 21, and when they had prayed... The place in which they, were, they gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. It's an interesting passage. And when they had prayed, that's an indication that what happened was incredibly sudden. As soon as they got through praying, this was a sudden response. Isn't it great when God answers you immediately? I don't know about you, but I like that. Don't you? But he doesn't always do that. But in this particular occasion, because of the, uh, of the difficulty and because of, of the timing of the prayer and the necessity for the gospel going forth, all of a sudden there was a sudden response. Notice there was a shaking that went on. Not a shaking that Pastor Mark did back there with a little bitty instrument back there, but a shaking where what happened? The place where they were shook like an earthquake. Anybody felt one of those in Wichita lately? You know when something is going on. There's an earthquake happening in this room. God is revealing himself to them. I am with you. And then notice that they were all of a sudden filled with the Spirit of the Lord. They were filled again with the Spirit of the Lord. Those who were gathered together at this particular time, they were all, not just the three, Simon, Peter, and and John and the lame guy, but all of those who were gathered together were filled with the Holy Spirit and notice and continue to speak the word of God with boldness. Did the threats quieten them down at all? Not at all. They continued to speak with boldness. Interesting here, I found this interesting illustration about five young college students who were spending the Sunday in London, so they went to hear 
the famous Charles Haddon Spurgeon preach. While waiting for the doors to open, the students were gathered by the man who asked, gentlemen, let me show you around. Would you like to see the heating plant of this church? Would you like to see the heating plant of this church? They were not particularly interested in seeing the heating plant, for it was not a hot day in July. It was a hot day in July, but they didn't want to offend the stranger, so they consented, and they went. And the young men, when taken down, down the stairway, a door was quietly opened, and their guide whispered, This is our heating plant. Surprised, the students saw 700 people bowed in prayer, seeking a blessing on the service that was soon to begin in the auditorium above. Softly closing the door, the gentleman then introduced himself. It was none other than Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Partnership, praise, prayer equals power. When we are united in one as one body in a partnership and we come together as one voice and we praise the Lord and we come together and we pray, then we will find that we will experience the presence of God unequal to any other time in the life of our church. And God will manifest his power through us. What trouble, what trial, what tribulation, what difficulty are you facing today, individually? How are you reacting and responding to that? Let's pray.